It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, there's a third national lockdown beginning, well, at least the legal part of it begins tomorrow in England. In theory, at least we're already in it. And the Prime Minister's been telling people once more to stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. Now, it also means schools are going to be shut until at least the middle of next month. And Boris Johnson suggested that then, possibly, restrictions could ease. If the rollout of the vaccine programme continues to be successful, if deaths start to fall, if everyone plays their part by following the rules, then I hope we can steadily move out of lockdown, reopening schools after the February half-term. Your esteemed Prime Minister there. Now, of course, these restrictions are coming in as cases rise a record increase which also prompted Scotland to issue a stay-at-home order lasting until the end of January. The First Minister Nicola Sturgeon says it's now illegal to leave home unless it's for an essential reason like food shopping, caring responsibilities or exercise. We will keep them closely under review. However, I can't at this stage rule out having to keep them in place longer nor rule out making further changes. Nothing about the current situation is easy. Nicola Sturgeon. Well, this morning, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, rolled out £4.6 billion of new support to help businesses that will be forced to close as a result of all this. Retail, hospitality, leisure companies, they'll all be entitled to one-off top-up grants of as much as £9,000 to tide them over until the spring. Right, let's hear from Labour then. Joining us is Charlotte Nichols, the MP for Warrington North. Um, Charlotte, I suppose the main narrative around Labour at the moment is looking at Keir Starmer. The accusation is there that he is playing politics. He's, in, uh, he's accused of calling for policy changes very soon before they actually get announced. What would you respond to, to those sorts of accusations? Well, I think it's a very fast-moving situation. It's quite clear with what's been happening that the government is behind the curve on every decision that they're taking. And ultimately, you know, Labour are pushing them to do the right thing, to have an actual strategy. But, you know, a lot of these decisions are taken fairly last minute. And, you know, the fact that Labour is calling for those decisions to be taken before they're taken rather than afterwards, you know, clearly we're on to the right thing. 
But Charlotte, I suppose the, the problem in all this is how do you, as an opposition, deal with a situation like this? Because it's not like any other uh, political issue, really. Opposition, for its own sake, doesn't make much sense when it's really a question of people's lives. Do you feel that your leadership has really got it right in all this? Or has there been a moment where perhaps a little more opposition, a little more challenge perhaps at some points, might have been more effective in drawing out the government's reasons for doing all this? Well, you know, Keir's been very clear all along that his strategy for being the opposition during a time of unprecedented national crisis is to be a constructive opposition. Now, you know, the Labour Party has supported the government in taking a lot of very difficult decisions, particularly when it comes to things like lockdowns, which have been necessary to slow the spread of the virus. However, it has been clear that over the course of, you know, the last year, in fact, that we've been living under some level of um, restrictions, that the government are often too slow to take these decisions that they aren't following the science. And I think Labour has been very firm when it's come to the government failing to take decisions, whether it's around, you know, the test and trace, whether it's around the amount of money that's getting handed over to private companies with no track record of delivering what they're being asked to, that the Labour Party is willing to criticise where the government is getting it wrong. Well, I mean, what about the speed aspect of all of this? You touched on it a moment ago. Over the weekend, we saw the National Education Union demanding school closures. At that point, we saw Keir Starmer not siding with them. Was it a mistake not to do that and, and not to uh, enter the fray at that point, waiting for a little bit longer to, to, to call for those school closures? Well, the Labour Party has wanted to be guided by the evidence. And, you know, MPs have been having briefings constantly from the government, from the Department of Health, from the scientists, from SAGE. And it's clear that closing schools had to be the last resort because everyone wants children in schools. However, it became clear that further school closures were going to be inevitable, that the Tier 4 restrictions weren't doing enough to slow the spread and that schools have been the vectors of disease spread. And as much as children are less affected, um, although they seem to be more impacted by this new strain, clearly children don't go to school by themselves. You know, you have teachers, you have school support staff, you have parents who, you know, the school being open makes it more likely that they're going to get it as well. So I think the right decision was taken. But as I said, it's a very fast-moving situation, so you don't want to jump the gun on calling for measures that are, you know, sort of over and above what is necessary. But isn't there something in this, Charlotte, that really speaks to the whole uh, issue of what Labour is about? Because you're a party preeminently about trying to remove inequality. And what most people who know about education say is that the amount of school time lost, the opportunities that have been lost, are going to be a hugely unequal part of Britain's future. A large number of children who perhaps don't have access to, to Wi-Fi, to laptops, these kind of things, are going to be left behind. Yeah, and it's clear throughout this crisis that, you know, in areas like mine, for example, where, you know, we've had sort of four or five different sets of restrictions within the last month. We were in Tier 3 before the national lockdown. Um, 
you know, more children in places like the Northwest had been out of school for longer than in, you know, places like the Southeast, for example. So particularly when it comes to this year's exams, where you've got some kids who have been in and out of school for the last five months or so, and other children whose education has been, you know, near enough unaffected, clearly there's going to be an entrenched regional inequality there. Then, as you said, you also have the digital divide. You have kids who don't have access to, you know, things like Wi-Fi at home, things like, um, you know, iPads or laptops or other um, sort of educational aids. And that's why it's so important that in closing the schools, that the government has got a strategy for rapid delivery of that kind of technology to where it's needed. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a very difficult situation. What about the whole household mixing over Christmas? You look at the data, you look at the weeks that followed after the Christmas break and you see the cases going up and that is how we've ended up in the situation we're in now. Was that, in retrospect, a mistake? We're clearly paying the price for that limited freedom uh, and ultimately it is going to result in more virus cases and sadly more deaths. Yeah, and I think it was a mistake for two reasons. The first being that, as you said, it led to cases going up throughout the crisis. We know that household mixing is the number one way in which coronavirus is spread. It's the number one risk factor. So telling people that essentially they had a free-for-all for a few days to do that over Christmas, we're still not actually yet um, seeing the full effects of that policy. Um, you know, it's going to take another sort of two to three weeks for us to see the full impact. But I think actually the biggest part of why that was a mistake was the false hope that was dangled in front of people at the end of a really, really horrid year only to then be snatched away at the very last minute when I think it was clear for at least a month before, um, you know, this U-turn that was put in place that that wasn't going to be something that was a good idea. That, you know, even from my own perspective, having, uh, you know, my Christmas plans cancelled a couple of days before was really, really horrible. And I know that from the contacts that I've had from constituents, speaking to friends, how hard that really hit people. And I think, you know, the worst thing is, you know, losing hope, having that snatched away from you. And I think, you know, a lot of people have spoken about the mental health impact of the coronavirus crisis. But I think that's a really good example of it. You know, having hope constantly dangled in front of you only to be snatched away at the very last minute. Well, it's really quite horrid. Well, I was going to say, speaking of hope, of course, the big hope is the vaccine rollout. Briefly, if you, if you would, Charlotte, how is the vaccine rollout going in your constituency? Um, I think as with up and down the country that it's started um you know we are seeing the rollout both in the hospital and um, through gps for example the um community pharmacy rollout should be beginning today and obviously with the new astrazeneca vaccine it means that some of the places that have been more difficult to reach such as um elderly people who are confined to their homes where the vaccine had to be kept at minus 70 was quite difficult to get to them. You know, we should see things starting to pick up quite quickly. But, you know, again, the fact that the um, target of a million vaccinations a week still hasn't been 
met and clearly that's not going to be remotely sufficient. We should be looking yeah. for at least two to three million a week. You know, I think everyone wants this to work. I certainly want it to work. I can't wait to get vaccinated. But, you know, it's quite concerning yeah. that a lot of the lessons, a lot of the mistakes that have been made earlier in this crisis, the lessons don't appear to have been learned from. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. We start with the new virus measures the government considering bringing in further restrictions for international travel. This is according to Michael Gove. Uh, this includes toughening border controls to require international arrivals to have a negative test before travelling to Britain. Hauliers are exempt from this. Uh, here's Michael Gove speaking a little bit earlier on. I talked last night to uh, the First Ministers of uh, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland because we want to operate on a UK-wide basis. And we'll be coming forward very shortly with new proposals on how exactly we will make sure that uh, our borders are safe. But the message is very, very clear for UK citizens that they should not be travelling. Of course, there's a natural concern about people coming into this country. And as I say, we'll be seeing more very shortly. Meanwhile, the pandemic is amplifying economic divisions. That's according to the Nobel Economics Prize winner, Angus Deaton. In a study by him through the Institute of Fiscal, for Fiscal Studies, he says the Chancellor should now use tax and spending policies to address the widening economic gap between old and young. The report warns that the young are more likely to work in virus risk sectors, such as hospitality. Meanwhile, older people, it says, have benefited from rising asset prices. Yeah, and not to mention the amount of borrowing going on at the moment. Warranted, yes, but predominantly going to be felt by younger people as they pay it off throughout their lifetimes. And then the UK about to begin a drawn-out game of political musical chairs over its electoral map that will leave some MPs facing electoral extinction. The 650 constituencies represented in the House of Commons are going to be reworked so that each one contains about the same number of voters. Uh, this is the Office for National Statistics publishes the latest population numbers for each constituency. So using that data, the independent boundary commissioners for each of the four nations are going to redraw the map so each seat has about 73,000 voters. If that all sounds catastrophically boring, you are wrong. It's actually really interesting and you should definitely go and read about it. The, uh, the Commons Library has done some good stuff. And that replaces the old plan under the coalition era to reduce the number of seats totally to 600 from 650. That's been scrapped um, recently by the current parliament. Because they want to keep as many seats as they already have. Possibly even get more, which uh, doesn't uh, bode well. But anyway, let's talk about uh, the government and Boris Johnson. He has had a couple of weeks of, well, fairly turbulent politics. Of course, he managed to get the Brexit deal through in the end on Christmas Eve. And at the same time, he's also now presided over the third lockdown in England. How is the Prime Minister faring then in public estimation? Is the public hunger for stricter regulation, as we've seen over many, many months, actually undimmed despite what's going on? Well, joining us now is Adam Drummond, who's head of the political polling at Opinium. Adam, welcome to the programme and thank you for being 
being with us. Um, one thing did catch my eye uh, from another organisation, Comres, in fact, um, saying 79% are backing the new lockdown and 62% of people believe the government reacted too slowly. It kind of bears out that idea, which I, I know your opinion, your information has also found out, that people are really quite keen on stricter regulation generally. Is that still the case? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that's terribly surprising because the, the rule of thumb throughout the whole pandemic has been that, um, generally speaking, voters are very much in favour of any big public steps to combat the virus. So almost every, you know, back in the rule of six, um, uh, back in the original lockdown back in March last year, every time you ask about something, there's really strong support for it. Um, there's a question underlying those stats of how sort of happy people are about that. And there is an ongoing question about... Um, whether people are going to see this uh, new lockdown as, you know, a good thing that the government is trying to get to grips with with this, um, you know, new wave of the virus, or whether it's an illustration of, you know, sort of the failure of their strategy so far. That's why you have obviously multiple questions you ask about how people think the government's handling the virus more generally. Um, but yeah, a, a rule of thumb is that the public take a very sort of safety first approach to uh, the virus, um, at least in polling questions, um, and generally strongly support um, everything that um, speaks to sort of uh, stricter restrictions. Well, uh, Adam, tell us about that, because as, as you say, the support for this lockdown is strong. From what I remember, each lockdown has had pretty strong public support. But at the same time, perhaps the people have not been showering praise upon the government. How does that square up? Well, you're exactly right. That, um, And even going back to March, when um, the, the series of questions we asked, one of them was, how do you think the government's handling the pandemic more generally? And that was kind of middling along. There was more support, uh, more approved than disapproved. And then the first lockdown happened and it shot up to the sort of high 50s and 60s. And conservative vote share also went up as well, although obviously that's slightly secondary. Um, and then gradually that sort of trickled down um, over the course of last year. And the other key question that, of course, you mentioned there is whether people think the government acted fast enough or acted in time. And so the general story, as you say, with each of the various lockdowns that have happened is um, the public essentially saying, yes, we're glad you're doing this, but come on, it's a bit late. Yeah, we're glad that you're finally getting around to this, but could this not have been done a bit earlier? Um, and you see that effect in the gradually sort of diminishing proportion of uh, people who approve of the government's handling the pandemic. And what about the other key thing in all this, which is, yes, people support fierce lockdowns and, and, and strong measures. What about the vaccine? Because that's absolutely crucial. And we've seen, interestingly, in France, uh, getting close to uh, almost 50% of people think they might not take the vaccine. What is the vaccine attitude really here in the UK? So France is an interesting case because I think historically it's it's generally been a bit more kind of vaccine sceptical than other European other other. Um, uh, developed countries um, in that regard. So there's an extent to which that's kind of a unique France thing. The equivalent figures that we have for the UK are something like a third of people rather than half saying that they're, um, they're less likely to take the vaccine. Now, obviously, we the way that we frame that, you know, the other, half, other side of that is obviously two-thirds saying, yes, I probably will get it. The other figures that accompany that are nearly half of people or slightly more than half of people saying that they're a little bit or a lot concerned about, you know, the potential sort of safety of a vaccine and also potential side effects. So the crucial thing here is that basically there was a slice of the population between sort of 10 and 20 percent who are both concerned about possible side effects of the vaccine, but are also keen to take it if it's there. So basically they're, they're prioritizing taking a vaccine against coronavirus over the possible risks of, of um, you know, side effects which may not have been discovered or any other sort of um, possible concerns there are. It's still a, a significant chunk of the population, you know, about a third who say that they aren't keen on taking a vaccine, which obviously highlights 
why it's so important to have a big sort of public health campaign and also the importance of messengers about this. So one of the things that the government, I think, has been doing right over the course of the pandemic has been putting the scientific advisors front and centre and really emphasising that, you know, this, this comes from a sort of sort of neutral place of science rather than, you know, Boris Johnson's personal judgment. And I think having, um, you know, scientists and doctors and the NHS, crucially, um, the band there, front and centre of any public uh, information campaign about a vaccine is going to be vital in, in having high uptake. OK, that's the vaccine. Got to ask you about Brexit as well. I mean, Labour in particular mm. had a very difficult time deciding how it was going to vote over this. There was some um, split within the party and that very much reflects the fact that it never really managed to to, to grasp either side throughout the, the, the whole four years of it, really. Um, they ended up backing it largely. How will that pay off with voters? What are Labour voters in particular saying and Remain voters saying about uh, about that decision? So in, in a couple of bits of polling we did over um, December, basically asking about before there was a deal, so asking about a hypothetical deal, and then after there was a deal, basically, do you think MPs should vote for it? And in every variant that we asked, um, the proportion saying they should vote for it was far higher than the proportion saying they shouldn't. And this is the case when we asked about Labour voters, in, uh, sorry, Labour MPs to Labour voters, and also just MPs more generally. So there is there is strong backing for voting for the deal, even among Remain voters and uh, yeah, the more sort of hardcore Remain voters. The question basically is, one of the difficulties with doing any kind of polling about Brexit is that because it's, you can, you can talk about a deal in the abstract, but once you actually get into you know, the, sort of the nitty gritty of anything like tariffs or non-tariff barriers or any of that stuff, you really can't get that much of a, you know, people you know, quite sensibly given, you know, everyone has busy lives, don't have strong opinions about non-tariff barriers and, and all sorts of other things, you know, dynamic convergence or any of that stuff. Um, so what we know is that leaving the EU and leaving the transition period with a trade deal is the most popular and acceptable Brexit end state of the various ones we tested, which include, you know, just staying in the EU after all and, you know, leaving without a deal. The question that we, we sort of don't necessarily know is, as the sort of details and, and the impact of the deal that they've signed possibly become apparent, whether sort of voters will, will you know, recognise that um, any sort of issues they face, whether those are down to the deficiencies of the Brexit deal or Brexit itself or anything like that, and then also whether or not they sort of blame Labour for that. I think that's probably quite unlikely, given that we know that most people pay less attention to the intricacies of politics than, um, you know, sort of political geeks like us. Um, and so I think it's quite unlikely that um, uh, Labour's going to face significant sort of blowback for, for voting for the deal. Well, talking of uh, politics, geeks, and what we actually are rather interested in, despite the fact there isn't an election, of course, in prospect, it is fascinating when a poll like the one that came up over the weekend seemed to show that Boris Johnson might, if there was an election tomorrow, lose his 80-seat majority, might even lose his own seat. I mean, is this a government that, in general terms, is not popular? So, I suppose it all depends on basically what context we're looking at this in. So if you took basically the average of public polls that have come out, so ours and various other companies, um, since the start of the year, so start of 2020, obviously the Tories about sort of 20 points ahead, and then the end of 2020, most polls kind of averaging around a tie. So sometimes one of the two parties will be above 40%, but typically they're both on about sort of 39, 40 each. And obviously if that is replayed in an election, then it all comes down to sort of the vagaries of individual seats and maybe one party has slightly more seats than the other. Um, so you would expect, you know, the government to lose its majority if the result of a general election was a sort of 39, 39% tie. Um, 
it, the, the question is kind of, is that sort of expected of a government that is, you know, mid-term and also has gone through a major crisis? Or is the actual story the fact that, you know, the Conservatives have been in power for you know, nearly 11 years and have uh, been going through a pandemic which is widely believed to be not, you know, handled as well as other countries? Is it kind of therefore a bit more sort of remarkable that they're only a couple of points shy of their election vote share just over a year ago? Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.